radical community. And today I'd like you to turn to Philippians chapter 2. We couldn't do a series on radical community without talking about today's topic, and that is unity. And we want to see that topic from these fairly well-known verses from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. It says this, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to see Jesus in a new way today, to see the cross in a fresh way today, and to see how these realities, these truths that we sing about, that we, uh, that we hold to so tightly, are meant to uh, affect the way that we relate to one another. And they're meant to promote a deep love and unity among us as a church. So we ask for your help now as we study these things together. In Jesus' name, amen. Unity. If you have been around the church for any length of time, you've heard about this topic. Maybe you've heard sermons about this topic. If you've been around the church for any length of time, you perhaps, maybe more likely, have experienced disunity in the church. Some of you here have experienced what it is to go through a church division, church breakdown. Uh, perhaps some of you are, are even here today. You've come to our church from another church where you felt that you needed to move on and leave that context. Church unity is so crucial. It's mentioned over and over. Jesus prayed for it bef just before he went to the cross. And the biblical writers of the New Testament remind us often about the importance of it. Here in this passage, we're going to see verse 2 as the center of the text for today. This is the point that Paul is making, and everything he says before leads up to verse 2, and everything he says after uh, supports and uh, backs up what he says in verse 2. And verse 2 is where he provides this challenge uh, for us to be unified in the faith. So look at that verse. I hope you have your Bible open. Philippians 2.2, 2, he says, Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. What's interesting here is we have three sets of four. Verse two, we have Paul giving us four descriptions of what Christian unity looks like. 
And then we're going to see that he supports that in verse 1 with four things, and then he's going to challenge us to pursue unity with four things in verses 3 and 4. But we start here in the centerpiece where Paul challenges us to be challenges us to be unified. So what do these four things mean? Did you see them? Like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. When he says like-minded, what he says is, I want you to think the same. I want you to think the same. Now, we've got a problem before we even start now, don't we? How could we possibly think the same? I mean, we have people here who cheer for the Maple Leafs, and we have people here who cheer for, uh, no, possibly, can't possibly be Canadians fans, but maybe there are. But on deeper levels, we disagree about politics. We disagree about certain doctrines within the church. We disagree about uh, music preferences and worship styles. There's all kinds of things that we just can't possibly think the same way. It's not humanly possible for us to think the same on every topic, even topics that pertain to our Christian faith. So what is Paul saying here when he says, think the same? Well, I think we're actually going to see If you go back and have a quick look at verse 1, we're going to get to it in a moment. But in verse 1, he gives us some of the provisions that God gives us to enable us to have unity. And there we find things like uh, being united with Christ and having the comfort of his love and the common sharing in the spirit and the tenderness and compassion. I, I think what Paul is saying here, using Jesus as the centerpiece of unity, as the foundation of our unity, what he's saying is, You should all think the same thing. You should all think the way that Jesus thinks. In fact, you should all think about Jesus. And that's really where unity comes from. It doesn't come from uh, the elders of a church trying to convince everyone that they're right and everyone should think exactly like they think. Unity comes from us thinking about Jesus, thinking what Jesus thinks, thinking the same things about him in our worship. This is what Paul means when he says, think the same thing. Then when he says, love the same or have the same love, again, it's a reference back to what we find in verse 1, where we read about the love, the goodness, the kindness of Jesus. Have that same love. We should love each other the way he loves us. This is what Christian unity looks like. And then he says that we should have be one in spirit. That's literally what the Greek says here. One in soul. Psyche is the Greek word that's used. Imagine that. This idea that as believers we would be knit together soul to soul. In our inner being, one. Have you ever had a relationship like that? Hopefully, uh, Travis and, uh, and, and Rachel will have a relationship like that. Hopefully, our uh, married couples, we have that kind of relationship. If you've ever had a deep friendship, maybe you know what it's like to be knit together, soul to soul. Anyone maybe who's been involved in military conflict, you've been in the army, and you know what it is, even, even in training, to be side by side, shoulder to shoulder with, uh, with others who are going through the same difficulties that you are, and your lives can be knit together. Uh, Even in a sports team, sometimes this can happen. But how does it happen in the church? Well, I would argue that it happens in the church, well, number one, because our souls are knit together in Jesus. We're all in him, and he is in all of us. So there's this opportunity for us to have our souls knit together in in a deeper way than we can experience in any other kind of life. You might remember in the Old Testament when 
uh, David and Jonathan so close, such deep friends. And um, there's language in the Old Testament that describes their friendship in this way. On one occasion, Jonathan was going up against the Philistines, and all he had with him was his armor bearer. And he made this little plot with his armor bearer that if they call us to come to them, we'll, we'll believe that that's God saying, go up and attack. And it was a ridiculous, foolish plan where it was Jonathan and his servant going against a number of Philistine soldiers, but the Philistines call them up. And the, and the armor bearer says to, to Jonathan, I'm with you heart and soul. And this is what God intends for his people to experience as we do life together. This is not a casual, social, religious experience that we have on Sunday mornings, that we just happen to go to the same church and we just happen to meet the same people and smile. We learned we should smile last week. But there's something so much deeper and greater happening here, and this is God's intention, that our lives, our, our inner beings would be knit together in Christ. And then finally, the fourth thing we see in verse 2 is that we would be of one mind. So the first one we saw, the bookend at the start, is that we should think the same. And the one at the end says that we should think one thing. And of course, that takes us back again to Jesus. When we think of him, when we think of the good news of Christ, when we focus on that as our one main thing, Christian unity becomes so much more possible for us. I want to give you a little definition of my own for Christian unity. And I'm saying it's this. True unity is when believers are deeply united around Christ, his message, and his mission. Now think about this definition. I believe it's lifted right from what Paul is teaching here. True unity is when believers are deeply united around Christ, his message, and his mission. Do you know what that means? It means that we could be a church where we always get along. Like, there's just never any arguments here, there's never any disagreements here, no one ever gets unhappy here, and yet we're really shallow in our faith. We're not actually rallying around Jesus or his message or his miss, miss, uh, mission. And so the reality of that is that even if we never had an argument, no one ever left our church unhappy, the reality is we would not have Christian unity in the way that Paul is teaching it here. Because it is far more than just the fact that we don't fight. Unity in Christ means so much more than that. This is what Paul is driving at. We are deeply united around Christ. His, his person, his message, his salvation, and his mission so unites us and knits us together that we have a unity that cannot be explained by the world. It's so much more than just getting along. Getting along is good, we should do that. But we need to unite around this, Jesus and the gospel. I want you to look back at verse 27. We might ask ourselves the question, why? Why does this actually matter? I'm saying verse 27 of chapter one, sorry. And actually our passage flows from verse 27 of chapter one. Notice what Paul first is saying there. He says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way. 
So if we go back to verse 27 of chapter 1 and we see his message of unity starting there and traveling through into chapter 2, we get the why of church unity. The why of church unity is this, that without it, without us truly rallying deeply around Jesus and his good news message, we are actually not living in a way that's worthy of the gospel. Do you see that? We are not living worthy of the gospel that we say we believe if we are not together, united around Jesus Christ. In other words, if we say we believe it, but we're just casual. We're so casual in our faith that we don't actually need any other believers. We're so casual in our faith that we don't, we're not actually striving to get the message out in such a way that we actually need one another. We're just casual. In that sense, we're not living worthy of the gospel. We have to be united in this deep way because that's how we put the gospel on display as a church. How would anyone come into a church who's casual about the faith? We say we believe this, but it's very casual for us. It's not really a big deal. It's not the most important thing to us. Will they find the reality of salvation among us? The answer is probably not. But if they come into the midst of a church where people are passionate about Christ, united around Christ, knit in soul, around his, mis his message and his mission, then we are living in a way that's worthy of the gospel and it puts the gospel on display. That's why we need to strive for unity. But the question is then, how? How do we live this deep unity? And if you're like me, you know your human nature. You know how hard it can be to live in this way. Uh, to even want to be united to other people at times. I just want to keep to myself. I just want to do my own thing. I know what it is to be a person who loves solitude. How do we live this out? Paul gives us the answer starting in verse 1. And I want to call this verse, Paul's giving us provision. This is the provision of salvation that enables us to live out church unity. Four things in verse 1 that are Christ's provision, salvation's provision for us that enables us to live in Christian unity. Notice the first one. He just starts right into it. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, let me just boil that down a little bit and say it this way. If Christ is your helper, if you are a child of God, Christ has not just become your savior, uh, he has become what this word is, your paraclesis. It's like he's your lawyer, and he's your friend, and he's your guide, and he's your counselor. He's all of that wrapped into one person. That's what we have when we have a relationship with Jesus, Christ as my helper. That's literally what the Greek says. By the way, when he says if, understand this as well, what he's really saying, he's being rhetorical here. Paul's not questioning whether in salvation we have Christ as our helper. He's saying it rhetorically because we do. It's something that he makes so clear in so much of his writing and teaching. To be saved is to be in Christ and to have Christ in us. So this is the first provision we have in order to pursue church unity. We literally have Jesus as our personal helper, our lawyer, our guide, our counselor. But he goes on. If there's any comfort from his love. This word here is the idea of persuasion. Have you ever been persuaded by someone's love? You didn't want to do something, but 
when you saw the way somebody loved you, someone served you, you were persuaded. You saw their example. You felt the experience of their kindness towards you, and you were persuaded by that. This is what Paul is saying here, that we have this powerful persuasion. And again, if we're here today and we say, well, I'm a believer in Jesus, I'm a follower of Jesus, I've been saved, what that means is we've heard the gospel, we've heard that, God, that good news that God loves me, that Jesus loved me and died for me, and we've received that. So Paul's saying if you believe that, if that's true of you, then you know about this love of Christ and the power that it has to persuade us to be loving as he is loving. Then he says, if, uh, if there's any uh, comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit. In other words, as believers, we have in common this reality that we have the Holy Spirit within us. It's very similar to the first one. We have Christ as our helper. We have the Holy Spirit as our helper. And as believers, we in common, Scripture says we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. He's been placed within us, and we can't lose him. He's part of who we are now. He's part of our lives. He resides within us. And then finally, two things, a, a, a pair here, uh, where Paul says, if there's any tenderness and compassion, and again, I believe he's referring to what we receive in the gospel, tenderness and compassion. Have you ever heard that this word tenderness, uh, and often used in the Bible, uh, is the word uh, guts, right? That's, that's what literally what the word means. Uh, we use, in Valentine's Day, we use the heart as the seat of affections in our culture. In those days, it was the gut. But think about what that means. If you ever had that deep sense of compassion for someone, where you saw someone in need and you just moved, that's the idea here. Jesus was so moved for us. There's places in the Gospels where it describes Jesus as groaning, deep within himself. He was so moved with tenderness toward us that he was willing to lay down his life for us. And then the second word here is the idea of compassion, the idea of mercy. What's cool about this isn't just that Paul's reminding us that we are recipients of the, the tenderness and the compassion of Jesus. Think about what that means. If I am a person who's received mercy... What does that mean about me? If I am a person who elicited someone's compassion, what does that mean about me? Do you see what these words mean? These words remind us that we were exceptionally needy people. We were not people who uh, earned or deserved anything from Christ. We were people for whom he felt sorry for. He had mercy upon us. He had compassion. We were like the crowd that we learned about last week who in and of themselves, they were the kind of people that a lot of people would have said, we don't, we don't have time for them. We recoil at these kinds of people. That's us. That's us as sinners. Jesus having tenderness and compassion for us. Do you see what Paul is saying here? This is our provision. Number one, that we can look back in our own history and recognize that God has been so good to me, that Jesus has been so good to me. Secondly, I have these tremendous resources in my life. Jesus is with me. The Holy Spirit is with me.
But then I have this reminder of how unworthy I was to receive all of this goodness of God, which I believe Paul intends for us to see means that we turn and extend that very same kind of tenderness and compassion to someone else. Now, what's crazy about us as human beings is, especially if there's ever any hint of disunity or we, we meet someone that we don't naturally like, we don't really want to hang around with that person, and what happens is we, we see them as an object of mercy. And if I were to extend love to them or extend attention or kindness to them, well, they don't really deserve it. And what we forget in that moment is that neither did, neither did I. Scripture, it's amazing how so often when it teaches us how to love each other, what it does is it takes us back to the cross and says, do you remember you? Do you remember your story? Do you remember how unworthy you were to receive the compassion and kindness of Jesus? And if we remember that, and how amazing it is that God has saved me in spite of myself, the, our ability to love someone else who we might naturally deem unworthy of our love suddenly rises exponentially because we've simply remembered the gospel. We've remembered Jesus. We've remembered the cross and how this provides us with the resources to live in unity with other believers. So how do we do it? Well, verse 1 tells us God has given us tremendous provisions in order to live in unity with other believers. But now look at verses 3 and 4 because here we see that there are decisions Involved in this. God provides his provision through Christ and the gospel. But now Paul says, you need to make some decisions. Verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Understand this reality that if you're going to live in unity, it's not something that just happens. It's not something we pray for and hope that we feel it. It is something that we choose. And we can have unity based on our own choices, particularly our choices to humble ourselves. So verse three, do nothing out of selfish ambition. What does that mean? It means that we abandon selfish ambition. The most natural thing in the world for us, even as people who are saved, is to live with a self-centric worldview. That it's really about me. I want what I want. If you don't happen to want what I want, too bad for you. I'm going to pursue what I want. I have my ambitions. What is Paul saying? He's asking us to abandon that. Like, just do not. Stop. Don't do that anymore. And I love this word abandon. Like, we're going to jump ship on this one. No more am I going to live with selfish ambition. He goes on to say, in humility or sorry, first, uh, vain conceit is the idea that I want my personal glory. I want people, this can be as simple as this, I want people to notice me. If I'm going to serve in the church, if I'm going to teach Sunday school, boy, someone better thank me. If I'm in the nursery and I take care of someone's uh, kids, I won't use an adjective there, just kids, they better say thank you, they better notice, they better acknowledge or maybe, we, maybe it's more than that. Maybe we actually serve 
God. We, we look for ministry opportunities for personal glory, to make a name for ourselves. Paul says, just abandon that. Just jump ship on that. Just stop. Don't do that at all. He goes on and says that in humility, we should value others above ourselves. It just means what it says. In humility, we put others ahead of ourselves. Ephesians chapter 5 is that famous chapter where we read about husbands and wives and we read about submission. But before we get into that teaching in verse 21 of Ephesians chapter 5, Paul exhorts all believers to submit to one another. It is a military word. It is, it is a word about rank. And it's simply saying to us, take the lower rank. Anytime you encounter another believer, and this is actually fun because even with kids, we can do this, right? I meet another believer, and maybe they, they haven't been a Christian as long as I have. They don't, they don't have the responsibilities in the church that I have. They're not as old as I am, but Scripture teaches me to see them as having a higher rank in the eyes of God than I do. I just find that so helpful. It is so simple. That any person I meet in the family of God, I just simply in my own mind say, you not me. You first. Humbly put others ahead of yourself. And then notice verse 4. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Here's where we talk about personal preference. So often when disunity rises in the church, disagreements between people, it's often about this. It's about preference. Paul doesn't use that word. He uses the word interests. But this is the idea that he's expressing here. We abandon personal preference for the sake of others. So there are times when we come up and, and we find friction with another believer, and it's because of preference. I like it this way. You like it that way. Paul says just, just abandon your desire, your insistence on having it your way. Let it be someone else's preference. This is decision. This is our choice. And in this sense, church unity doesn't happen by accident. It happens because we choose to obey the word of God as Paul commands us here. So how do we pursue church unity? Number one, we fall back upon those things that God has provided in salvation. Number two, we fall back upon the decisions that we're called to make, decisions towards humility. And then this final one, is the word reflection. Did you notice how Paul reinforces? It's like he drops the gavel. It's like he, he says, okay, here's the final word on this thing about unity. And it starts in verse five when he says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And then verses six to 11, he begins to quote an ancient hymn. That's what these verses are. It's an ancient hymn, which is fascinating, by the way. Because very early on, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, the early believers started writing songs. And this is one of the songs that they wrote about Jesus. Paul's like, that song fits perfect for what I'm saying right now. And it's a song that describes the condescension of Jesus in providing salvation for us. And what is the point here? I believe the point that Paul is making is if you want to have church unity... 
You want to have this deep soul-to-soul unity that's rallying around the person and the message and the mission of Jesus? Then take some time to reflect deeply on who he is and what he's done. And that's exactly what this hymn does. He says of Jesus, the hymn says of Jesus that he was in very nature God. He is divine. There is no one above Jesus. He is God. It says that he did not consider equality with God. That means that when Jesus referred to himself as I am in the Gospel of John, when he referred to himself as the Son of Man, prophecy of Daniel chapter 7, a divine figure, he he, he wasn't stealing anything from God. He wasn't trying to take something on that wasn't his. It was his. He was God. And yet it says, it wasn't something to be used to his own advantage. Imagine how he could have lived in this world with all of that authority and all of that power. Rather, it says, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Paul quotes the hymn for this one reason. Because the pattern that he's asking us to live by within the church as we pursue this deep Christian unity with one another is simply the pattern set by Jesus himself. So understand that this reality of his giving his life and dying on the cross for us was absolutely essential in order for us to be saved, but it's also the pattern by which we are now supposed to live. When we take communion, we're not just simply remembering what we've received in salvation and what Christ gave to us in his death. We're we're, we're literally seeing a picture of what we are called to. God now is calling us to be the bread that breaks. He's calling us to be the life that's poured out. To give ourselves for the good of our brothers and sisters. To give ourselves for the spread of the gospel that the message and the mission of Jesus might continue. Then, of course, the hymn goes on to reinforce the true identity of Jesus, that at the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow The same pattern is said of us, that those of us, uh, anyone who chooses to be a servant and to make themselves last in the eyes of God is great and will receive great reward in heaven. Reflect. Reflection is perhaps the most powerful way that we can be transformed and learn to live in Christian unity. Paul taught this truth in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. The scripture actually is embedded in our family commitment when we talk about the idea of transformation. And Paul wrote this, that we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. If we want to be truly transformed, if we want to truly live in this deep Christian unity, Well, number one, you need salvation. You can't do it in your own strength. We need to be made new in Christ. But then to be transformed day by day, continually to be uh, sanctified, as Scripture says, what do we need to do? Just keep looking at Jesus. Just, Just keep looking at the gospel. Just keep rehearsing 
the wonder of what Christ has done for you on the cross through salvation. Look again and again and again. Look again. And the more we see Jesus and his sacrifice and his humility, we marvel that we are saved and it becomes impossible for us to be puffed up in pride because our gaze is fixed on Jesus who gave it all for us. That's what communion is about, isn't it? That's why we do it regularly. And really, we can never do it enough. And as we take communion, this is what we want to be doing in the moments that we reflect or sing or pray, taking the emblems. We are thinking about Jesus and his sacrifice. Why? That we might be transformed. If you're here today and you are a follower of Jesus, this, this is our feast as the family of God. If you're here today and you've never trusted Christ, well, I want you to know something. You're invited to this feast. It's for you. Jesus died for you. If you've never trusted in Christ, if you're not ready to trust in Christ, I encourage you to pass the emblems by. But if you are, if you're ready to trust in Christ, you could take the emblems today as your very first act of saying, Jesus, I need you. I trust in you for salvation. I'm going to give thanks for the emblems, and I would encourage you, I hope you have your Bibles open there to that beautiful hymn, and if you're not sure what else to be thinking about as we take this time uh, of communion, then simply read those verses, reflect, meditate on them. As we reflect on who J Jesus is, his person and character begins to reflect out of us. So let's pray. Lord, we do give you thanks for Jesus Christ, for his incredible sacrifice for us. We worship him because he is God, he's divine. And yet we worship him, Lord, because he's been so good to us. We are so unworthy to receive the sacrifice he poured out. How could he come to this world for us? How could he give his life in such a cruel and wicked and awful way for us? And yet he has done that. So we take this bread and this juice now uh, to remember him and to reflect on him. And Lord, I pray to be transformed. Any of us who are your children, may we be transformed today as we gaze upon him and Lord if there's anyone here who's yet to trust in Christ help them to see his beauty today help them to hear his invitation to this table to be his children Lord we pray these things giving thanks amen